Welcome to Throwing Light. This is episode 22, Black Wall Street. Okay. Hello. I hope your day is going swimmingly and the news isn't too overwhelming and all is as well as can be in your sphere. A couple things before we get started. I guess the first one is Throwing Light Thursday is, as you probably know, kind of an every other Thursday deal, but this past every other Thursday. We had a glitch in the system. I had some life events that kept the podcast from coming out on the appropriate Thursday. And so what we ended up doing was pushing it back a whole Thursday. (laughs) So this is going to come out on, I believe, the 16th. And I hope I'm right about that. Yeah, so we're going, going to go from there. But that kind of, I like the way that that I like the way that things line up. So they'll be, and it just is easier. It was easier to push it back than to try to like catch back up with ourselves as far as recording and editing. And the grad school life is, <laughs> is real. Yeah. So it's been, it's been interesting to do this and be a student and an intern and all of the other things I am. So the heart of it, history heals, fake news kills. What we forget, we are doomed to repeat. So this is an episode about Black Wall Street, and it takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the early 1920s. And so I wanted to say before we got into it, so every time I do an episode, and I am kind of a person of privilege, you know, I feel nervous, I feel like... I want to do it justice. And I recognize to a certain extent, I'm coming from a place of whiteness and there are limitations there. Throwing Light is not yet at a place where we can regularly do interviews, but I just wanted to say like that is coming. And when I am at that place, my priority will be bringing on people who have a different perspective. Okay, so I'm not sure when I first found out about Black Wall Street, it's been called the worst race riot in history, but people have also said like the term race riot doesn't do it justice, like it was a massacre. I wanted to do an episode on this topic. I think maybe my husband brought it to my attention and he was really excited about doing an episode on it. And so, yeah, so here it goes. The story takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, during the heart of the Jim Crow era, where there were laws that mandated this horrible (laughs) idea of separate but equal and segregation. So Christina Monford in the Atlanta Black Star writes, in 1906, O.W. Gurley, a wealthy African-American from Arkansas, moved to Tulsa and purchased over 
40 acres of land that he made sure was only sold to other African Americans. That happened in 1906. So this was like the very beginning of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Gurley essentially used segregation to help Black people prosper. He used the rules that were there to keep him in his place to build a wealthy Black community. They built Black-owned businesses and hospitals and theaters and much more. According to, I think it was the devastation of Black Wall Street, which is a JSTOR article that I'll link The average income of black families in the area exceeded what minimum wage is today. A dollar circulated 36 to 100 times and remained in Greenwood almost a year before leaving. Even more impressive, at that time, the state of Oklahoma had only two airports, yet six black families owned their own planes. They were quite wealthy and thriving, and in part due to laws that were made to keep them in the place that white people thought they were supposed to be. And so white people in the area, many of whom, quote, came from Mississippi, Georgia, Tennessee, and Texas, became resentful of their black neighbors who were better off than they were. So as the story goes, on Memorial Day 1921, Dick Rowland, who was a black shoe shiner, got in an elevator to go to the restroom, and the elevator attendant's name was Sarah Page. And that's kind of all we know for sure. He was 19, she was 17. According to the reports, a clerk heard a woman scream and a black man running away. It's likely that they knew each other. Some speculate that they may have been a couple, that they may have had a relationship and were having a fight. So something happened there, but we don't quite know what. The next day, however, the Tulsa Tribune reported that a black man attempted to rape a white woman. And so white people in the area were infuriated. I want to pause for a second. The use of the word rape here is curious. They said he attempted to rape her, which is, according to Ali Conti, who's a vice journalist, In America, the word rapist wasn't referred to until the late 19th century in reference to lynchings. The Oxford English Dictionary notes its first use in reference to a, quote, N-word rapist. It was much easier to convict black men of crimes than whites because they were tried in slave courts and did not require unanimous jury verdicts. Sharon Block, the author of Rape and Sexual Power in Early America, told Vice that white men accused of rape would often get their charges reduced. Essentially, it was only considered rape because it was a black man and a white woman, and we'll never know what actually happened. But we know what happened after. Essentially, resentful white people seized this as an opportunity to put black people in their place. What ensued was devastating. At first, the Black community was only concerned for Roland's well-being. The possibility that he could be lynched was, it was likely, I guess. And so 30 armed Black men showed up at the Tulsa courthouse where a thousand armed white men had already gathered. So funnily, the sight of 30 armed Black men completely freaked out the horde of white men. So 
the black men fled back to Greenwood, and the white men followed. As they did, they lit fires to black businesses along the way. The National Guard was called in to protect white communities that lived near Greenwood. They rounded up black people and took them to detention centers. Some reports say that the U.S. Army bombed Greenwood from the sky. One survivor living today, who was a child at the time, recalled men with torches coming into his home and lighting the curtains on fire in order to burn down the house. The devastation continued for a day and a half until the National Guard declared martial law. No white people were charged with any crimes. It's estimated that as many as 300 people were killed, the vast majority of them black. 800 people who were mostly white, were admitted to the hospital for injuries. The number of injured black people is unknown because the black hospital was demolished. Greenwood never fully recovered. Shortly after the massacre, W. Tate Brady, who was the founder of Tulsa and a KKK member, was appointed to the Tulsa Real Estate Exchange. The Tulsa Chamber of Commerce had created the group to estimate the value of property damaged or destroyed in Greenwood. The exchange also contrived a scheme to relocate black Tolsons farther north and east of the original Greenwood. That's from the Tulsa Cultural Center. Quote from the JSTOR article, Two days after the riot, the mayor wasted no time in establishing the Reconstruction Committee to redesign Greenwood for industrial purposes. Blacks were offered below market value for their property. White men who offered, quote, almost any price for their property perceived survivors as desperate and destitute. So it was a capitalistic scheme to keep Greenwood from becoming a thing again. According to the Tulsa Cultural Center, Dick Rowland remained safe in the county jail until the next morning when the police transported him out of town in secrecy. All charges were dropped. He never returned to Tulsa. This quote from the JSTOR article, I think, is kind of the most powerful. In essence, African Americans posed a, quote, geographical problem because their community was situated in an ideal location for business expansion. The government and private industry worked in concert to bring down land prices and maintain white dominance in the Tulsa area. Poor whites' resentment of successful landowning blacks allowed elite whites to use them as pawns to obtain more land, wealth, and prosperity. Judging by the legal impunity granted to whites by law enforcement, the state endorsed and in fact supported the Tulsa riot for self-serving capitalistic gains. Historically, American capitalism has thrived with an elite few maintaining power and wealth. When blacks gain a strong foothold in a community or industry, they have the power to effect meaningful change. Thus, the socioeconomic progress of African Americans on Black Wall Street threaten the power structure of white-dominated American capitalism. When white people destroyed black business establishments and homes, the facade of white superiority was maintained. By the 1940s, the Greenwood District was rebuilt, but due to integration during civil rights era, never regained as much prominence. 
The fate of Black Wall Street illustrates that as long as power remains in the hands of elite, mainly white families, America's socioeconomic system can be marshaled to support and advance the tenets of white supremacy. And this last line, regardless of the progress made by prominent African Americans, American capitalism is structured to keep a white segment of society ahead of the remaining marginalized many. Oh, that was a mouthful. But that's the crux. That's the thing. And surprising no one, the history of Black Wall Street remained largely ignored and covered up until the 1990s. If you search for the history of Tulsa online, it's barely mentioned. And that's devastating in and of itself. It's all kind of a mess. And most of it leads back to capitalism and greed and white supremacy and the idea of entitlement that white people had. And thus we, their ancestors carry consciously or unconsciously. It's a legacy of destruction. It's a legacy of destruction. And we who are white, we're the beneficiaries of that system. I think that this administration has made plain this destruction and devastation that was kind of the underbelly of American government. And I think that what this administration has done is show what we are. There are several ways that we could digest this information. Some of them are probably more helpful than others. We could listen to this podcast, in my case, do the research for the podcast, and when it's done, set it aside and move on with our lives. It could throw us into a depressive state. Nothing ever changed. The world is fucked. Fuck it all. <laughs> and I laugh, but like, I've totally been there. <laughs> and I think that's, that is a valid response. We could take the information and look at how to incorporate it into our lives as activists, healers, and people who care about things. And that'll look different for each of us. For me, it might mean writing a paper or an article or this podcast. It might mean going to a march, sharing my thoughts and the connections I'm making on social media. It might mean talking to my kids about these events in a way that's age-appropriate, and preserving the history with the next generation. It might mean ancestor work. I just listened to this podcast, the brilliant Rebecca Burnt and Chelsea McMillan, and the podcast was called Ancestral Healing. And I've been thinking a lot about my ancestors and what messages they have to share. I don't think I personally have ancestors from Oklahoma, but you might. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, I think we're all connected past, present, and future. At the end of the day, here's why I created this episode. I want to change the perception of the bootstrap way because it's false. It's not true. If you're white, you had a leg up. If you're not, you didn't. And you may have had powerful armed white forces rallying against you. The system is broken. We have to start from that place, not so we can wallow in pity, but so we're not blind to the ways that it tries to ensnare all of us. I think that doesn't mean we can't get ahead. We can and we should. <laughs> I think we should work toward our own financial freedom. I want to use my future and present prosperity to live a life of generosity and change. And just because the game is rigged doesn't mean we shouldn't play it. And it's, I think, the really inspiring thing about the Greenwood area is that O.W. Gurley used 
the perceived weaknesses as a strength to create a thriving community. So we play the cards we're dealt and we use them to gather what advantages we can so that we can use our talents and resources to change the game from the inside out. And when we do (laughs) rise up, we can expect pushback and it will likely be given under the false guise of family values or sin or some other bullshit. But it's not that. It's fear. It's greed. It's scarcity mentality. It's the false idea that white people are somehow superior and or that black people are lazy or hooligans. Fuck that. Let's change the game by getting ahead and then change the script. Let's live lives full of integrity. Because I'm willing to bet that the white men who stormed Greenwood and destroyed the place didn't feel good about it afterwards. Maybe they didn't know that. I'm willing to bet that their misdeeds will haunt their ancestors today, and the blame goes to the people who did it. In the ancestral healing episode, the woman being interviewed talked about the importance of placing the blame on the person from the past who committed the atrocity. For their sake and for ours, this is not about vilifying anybody. This is about healing. So I think that's it. I have had a little bit of an influx in listeners, and and so welcome if you're new. I do this thing at the end of every episode that I call Break for Verses, which is just a piece of writing, prose or poetry or fiction or a journal entry from old. And so I, you know, I share it with you because I think that our words matter. <laughs> I guess that's why I do it, and it's a fun way to end. Here it is, your Break for Verses. Stupid girl, I muttered under my breath. She heard me. She winced but said nothing, continuing to stare at the cement floor. Shame washed over me. It drowned me for a moment. It was all I could do to keep from choking. This poor baby. She was so young. We all were. But she couldn't afford the vulnerability she'd just displayed. Lives were on the line. I wanted to hold her. To tell her that it would be okay. That we'd make it out alive. Scarred, but still in one piece. I couldn't, though. I stopped believing it. It was far easier not to believe anything, to let the calluses take over and shift into autopilot. Even if we did make it out alive, what life could we hope to have after this? She started to cry. I wanted to slap sense into her. I gathered up all the kindness I had left in me. Don't cry in front of them. Some get off on it. She sniffled. Next to her, Rasha laughed and gently touched her arm. What's your name? Rasha smiled. She was always smiling. Celeste, she whispered without looking up. It's not so bad, Rasha said, still smiling. I mean, it's god-awful, actually, but if you're creative, there are ways to cope. She got up and tiptoed over to her little patch of the rug. She pulled the corner up and smiled, her mischievous smile. This is my heaven, heavenly Celeste. A charcoal drawing of a chubby little boy beamed up at us, his bright eyes shining. He's so beautiful, Celeste whispered. How did you draw that? I steal coal when they take us to do showcase, Rasa giggled. I smash them with my feet under the rug over here, and then I use my fingers to paint 
don't they notice? Bah! Rasa clucked. They're not looking at my fingers. Thank you for listening. I am honored and grateful. I would love it if you would leave a review on iTunes because it does fancy things with the algorithm and it helps me reach more people. As always, the show notes for this episode can be found at brandyglows.com. If you have any questions or an idea for a future show, you can tweet me at brandyglows or email me at brandyglows at gmail.com.